0: Tonight on the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about a Hamilton legendary business, Kineski's, that is back in the NHL after a number of years away. We're going to be chatting about a program out of St. Catharines that helps to reunite kids that have graduated from the foster care system with the families from which they were removed once upon a time. But we're going to start out with a question, a simple question. How is it? That people, smart people, intelligent people, people who otherwise have good brains, somehow can't figure out that it's not a good idea to show your junk online.
1: Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML.
0: You know the story by now. I'm sure you followed the story. You've heard about it here on CHML. You've seen it everywhere else. Tony Clement, federal politician, has now been knocked down, basically knocked off his position, knocked out of his position. Because he, not wisely, apparently, the stories go, sent photos of himself, and I don't mean nice publicity photos, photos of parts of himself by the sounds of it that you generally don't see of politicians to someone who had connected with him online and had, now the story says that they had asked for it, but he didn't know who this person was. This was not like you and your friend, you and your neighbor, you and whomever, and somehow you strike up a romantic relationship and there is this going back and forth. This was someone he didn't really know. It was an online person, as I understand the story. And somehow this guy who, By all accounts, is otherwise a smart, intelligent guy with a powerful position, with a background of, as I say, intelligence, literally and figuratively intelligence in the intelligence community. He had a high security clearance, but also intelligence as a bright guy. He's been a politician for a long time, decided that he was going to go ahead and send these things. And look, I. The story here, and what I want to talk about, is not piling on Tony Clement's sexual problems as far as it goes here, because there's stories today that, according to him, that this led to infidelities and other things. That's for he and his wife and his family and others to sort of. I'm not. Di- I'm not going to pile on Tony Clement that way. That's not what this is about. What I just don't understand, as I've been following the story the last couple of days is how we're at a point in 2018 when the internet has been around for how long now? I mean, for basically 95% of the population, it's been at least 10 years they've been regularly using the internet, probably 15 for most, pushing 20 for some. How are we not yet clear on this being a bad idea? How, who, who is still confused at the thought that the internet is not a device that you send something into and poof, it's gone into the ether. Who is still confused? How are we possibly still confused at the fact that everything you post online leaves a permanent trail, a permanent record, can be followed, can be found? Who, how are we still struggling with this concept? I I I don't understand. Now I get. I get that when you start getting into areas of romance and lust and all those other things that sometimes certain parts of your body take control of your brain. Okay, I get that. But that doesn't mean that the brain shuts off completely. There is still a capacity even in the most lusty person on the planet, there is still a capacity to say, wait a second, if I take a picture of that and put it there, it is going to be possibly, well, it will, there will be a record and it could possibly be found by someone. And especially if I don't really know who the person is that I'm sending this to, how are we still confused about this? And yet we seem to be. And you would have thought that, how long ago was it now, five years ago, six years ago, seven years ago, that the perfectly named Anthony Weiner down in the States, with his sexting problems, not once, twice he got busted for this, twice he got busted for this. You would have thought that somewhere along the way that would have been the cautionary tale of all cautionary tales for politicians and everybody else. And we still don't understand that you don't take pictures of your junk and put it out there online. How is this still confusing to us? It baffles me that we are still at the point where we're talking about this, where somehow a politician, an intelligent man, No one is arguing. I have not heard a single person yet in this whole case regarding this whole thing. I've heard no one yet say, you know what? Tony Clement, eh, he was a dim bulb to begin with. No, no. Everybody is pointing out their surprise at this because Tony Clement is an intelligent person. But it's not just Tony Clement. Sophie joins me on the line now. Sophie, how are you tonight?
2: I'm okay. How are you?
0: I'm doing well. Thank you. Help me understand how we still don't get this.
2: But they do get it. I'm sorry. I, I think you're sort of barking up the wrong tree because I think people do get it. It's about power. They think uh, Tony Clement, um, Jim Wilson, and I forgot the other guy's name too. That was uh, you know implicated in all this too. Um, I personally, this is just my personal opinion. I think they think that they are invincible they can get away with it but
0: that you, that see now Sophie, i think you're onto something there I, and i don't think it's just them i think anybody who does this thinks that they'll never get caught yes but i don't when you say power the problem with the only problem i have with that is i don't believe they wanted this out because they know it could destroy them and yet they do it anyway
2: well no of course they don't want it out but and i think they think that the power that they have um, creates sort of a shield that you can't touch me because I am in this position.
0: Maybe. I, now, let me ask you one question, and it's going to be yes. the most uncomfortable question <laughs> anyone is going to ask you all day. Yes. If well, someone sent you, if some guy sent you a picture of his junk on text, would you be overwhelmed with romanticism and just unable to control yourself because that person sent that picture to you?
2: No. See? I, this is
0: the other part I don't get, yes. Sophie. we got to go to break here, but... Yep. I, I don't understand. What guy thinks this is a romantic gesture that is going to win the hearts well, and mind of a woman to send a picture a, a, of his a, unit?
2: Well, exactly. That is the question, isn't it? I think there is a vast difference between what <laughs> men find um, sort of attractive and what women find attractive. Yep. I, I, Sophie, that, that's all I can say.
0: Uh, Sophie, I appreciate your call. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Uh Bye. By the way, I got an email from KG who says they are attention seekers. Uh, maybe... But again, I don't think they want this attention. I think people just honestly don't believe they can have their photos and images and everything pulled off the internet. Message to everybody, don't put nude photos on the internet, on text, on whatever. It will get out somehow. You will get that picture of you out somehow. It is not worth it. Do it in person.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: There is a show that is on the TLC network right now. You may have seen it before. Some of you will have, it's called long lost family. If you have seen it, you know what I'm talking about. It is a, basically a show in which a birth mother looks to find the child she gave up for adoption or vice versa. And in this show, one of those people can't be found. Hence the name long lost family. And every episode is the same. We know how every episode goes. They do their thing, then they find them and it's a glorious finish and it's schlocky and it's maudlin and whatever. Thing is, finding that missing person isn't usually all that difficult, especially down in the States, because the amount of information you can dig up in the United States through public documents and public records is enormous. There is a ton of stuff. It is never really hard to find someone in most of the States anyway. If you have any sense at all of how to do any research, you can probably find someone. Things are different here in Canada. We have a far different public records system. There is far less information available, and it is much more difficult to find someone that you are looking for here. Our records are way less accessible, way less easy to navigate. So if you have someone who's been removed from a home once upon a time, placed in foster care, graduates, gets to an age where they are now out, they come out the other end of foster care, and they want to then go back and find the family that they didn't have once, or they had once upon a time, but were removed from. If they want to go and do that, how do they go about doing it? Well, Nadine Niza is a director of a movie called, a documentary called Next of Kin. It's going to be on CBC tomorrow night at 9 o'clock. It's about this. She joins us now. Nadine, thanks for doing this tonight.
2: Thanks for having me, Scott. I appreciate
0: it. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff I want to get to here, but l- let's start right with the difficult part. We don't make it easy in this country to find people, for better or for worse. It, it is a challenge to track people down.
2: It is. I mean, as you said, there's a lot of um privacy laws that we have that are, you know, in place for a reason, but um children when they do uh age out of the uh child welfare system, they they are provided with a social history. They do get some information about their parents. Now, it can be many years after the fact. Um so tracking those people down isn't always easy. Um, but there's a program at Raft um, that has uh, family finders or support workers that have been working there for many years, and they've become quite good at um, parsing out information. And a lot of it comes from the memories of the kids.
0: Yeah, I want to get to Raft in just one second, but just for the records that we have here, would it be similar when you get out of the foster care, is it similar the information you're able to get that someone who has been adopted would be able to get? No. Less or no, more?
2: It's less. Really? Yes. Why? Yeah. Um, well, at the time, the idea, I mean, this is changing because there's more of an emphasis put now on um, trying to place children with kin so that they have some connection to their biological family, but um, in the past, I believe it was there to protect Um, The idea was to protect the child, uh, to make sure that uh, that separation, because they felt it was an unsafe place for the child to be. Um, And so the idea was to put them in a home where um, they could start a new life.
0: Right. Because in most cases, well, is it fair to say in most cases, I would think in most cases, somebody who has been placed into foster care, has been put there either because they have no family, because they've been orphaned or something, or because it is a difficult situation in their home and the backgrounds aren't always great. Is that a fair comment?
2: Usually it's a difficult situation that involves uh, a substance abuse addiction or mental illness.
0: So the idea that they would immediately run right back to that family may have some concerns for the people who are running the foster care system, the children's aid, etc.?
2: Mm-hmm. And also the family, the parents. I mean, it's you can imagine how difficult it is for a child to be taken from their parent, no matter what the situation at home. And, and the two the things that I mentioned, it's not always that. I mean, really, it should be a family welfare system because these families need the help. It's it's almost hard to think about a child's welfare without the family's welfare.
0: How, how common is this? I mean, are we talking about hundreds of people in Canada or in Ontario or thousands or tens of thousands?
2: There's about 60,000 people across the country, young people in care, involved in the child welfare system. At any given give time? Day, yeah.
0: Wow. That's a lot more than I would have thought there would have been. Mm-hmm. So when they are finished with foster care, t- what traditionally happens to them then? Are they just sort of let go and then they go and do their own thing? What, what happens?
2: Well, it varies from province to province, um, but uh, aging out usually happens around 19. So as soon as they turn 19, I mean, many of the kids get dropped off at the shelter. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that RAF started this program, uh, because they saw that, you know, oftentimes they're, not in school. Um, They don't have the opportunity to build a network. Uh, The family that they've known, and it's not that the foster parents just turn their backs on them. There's no more support um, for them to stay there. I mean, they're actually not allowed to stay in the house.
0: Let me jump in here because we're going to take a very quick break, and then when we come back, I want to talk about this program that you've referred to a couple times called Raft and also to the movie that's on tomorrow. We'll do that when we return. Stay with us.
2: Thank you.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh,
0: Nadine Pekwaniza is the director of a movie called Next of Kin. It'll be on CBC tomorrow night at nine o'clock. It's a documentary on a group out of St. Catharines called Raft Resource Association for Teens. And Nadine, when they do now, when kids do get out of foster care. And by the way, just before we get to Raft, is it more often that it's the kids who are looking for their Families, or is it the families who have been looking for the kids? Do you know?
2: Oh, it's both.
0: Okay. So the the families, though, probably are pretty much helpless in this because they have no idea when or anything else. So when the kids get out of this and they decide they're going to start this, they go to RAFT if they want to, if they're in that area. What does RAFT do?
2: RAFT provides a number of different programs helping youth find um, housing, getting them back into school, providing counseling, and the Family Finding Service is just one of the the host of services that they offer. But it is a youth shelter.
0: The, the idea though of finding the families, as I said off the top, uh, if you were in the States, it would not be for most people that difficult. It is certainly doable if you're in the States with public documents that we have or that they have to be able to track down someone if you have any basic information about them. It's a lot harder here. So how do they actually go about doing this if there's almost no information available?
2: Yeah, every avenue they can think of. So social media plays a big role nowadays. There's always connections to different people. They've posted ads in Kijiji saying that they're looking for people, local newspapers if they know that the family was from a particular area. Sometimes they'll go back to high school records, death records, um, mentions in newspapers. Uh, They're really combing through everything they can think of.
0: Is there anything in the law that precludes or prevents someone, now that we have social media and texting or whatever else, from keeping up with their kids once they go to foster care? Do you have to have a complete cutoff when that happens?
2: Well, they won't have the information um, as to what foster home they would be in.
0: So there's no way they could have kept up along the way?
2: No. Although, as I said... In many jurisdictions now, there's emphasis on trying to place um, a child with kin, so Mm -hmm. to keep them within the family network, so that connection isn't completely lost.
0: There obviously, through Raft, and this is, again, what this documentary is largely about, it's called Next of Kin is the documentary, there obviously is a belief that reconnecting with that family that they had once upon a time would be a beneficial thing, would be a positive thing. What's that based on?
2: well uh, kids I think it, it I think it came up because the youth are looking um, you know kids when they are separated from, and I should say it 's not just for children who 've been in the child welfare system, but a lot of the young people who end up at the raft are there because they, you know, their families have broken apart. Your mom and dad might have split up um, when they were quite young, and they're missing a connection to a whole other side of their family. Maybe they don't get along with their mother. They might have spent time living with different relatives. So they have that same experience of instability and impermanence. And so the program's open to them as well. And what they found uh, working at the RAF, the two workers who were there, Jackie and Amanda, that we filmed with, is that the youth are often looking for um, these family members themselves. And I think it's that wanting to know who you are and where you came from. It's a, it's a sense of identity that you feel a part of you is missing or not understood, especially if the family that you do have any sort of connection with, you don't, get along with
0: mm. the yeah, for adopted kids who are who are through the system the normal adoption way if you were going to go look up your family or try to track that down children's aid would usually if you're going to go through them would want to give you some counseling because they want to prepare you for whatever could happen down the road because one of the there's not always a happy ending to this you could be rejected they could say they don't want to meet you it could be a horrible situation is that a concern with this? Because, again, you're starting in a lot of these cases with difficult situations.
2: Absolutely, it's a concern. So uh, RAFT, in the same way that the Children's Aid would have counselors in place, so does RAFT. And there is a worker who's with them every step of the way. So if somebody is found, um, they speak to them ahead of time and brief them on you know, what situation the youth is in, what's sort of been happening in their life. So it's not this cold meeting where nobody knows anything mm-hmm. about the other person, and they're present during those meetings. And then there are counselors available for the youth to speak with afterward. And so it's not, it's not a, an, an unmitigated um, experience.
0: The the movie the documentary is called Next of Kin. It is tomorrow evening at nine p.m. on CBC. Uh, Nadine, I really it's a fascinating topic. I really appreciate you taking some time to talk about it today.
2: Thanks very much.
0: It is uh, look if you, if uh, I started by talking about that show on TLC called Long Lost Family. That is the Disney version of this. That is the sanitized, happy ending, always brilliant finish that everybody was happy that someone found, I mean, that is the Hollywood version. This is the grittier version of that same story. If you are interested in one, you may be interested in the other Friday night. So tomorrow night, 9 PM CBC, the documentary is called next of kin. If you're interested,
1: you're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Three unusual, bizarre, occasionally uncomfortable stories from around the world. We'll give them to you, and Will, who's on the other side of the glass today, Will is keeping the show going. Will will decide, based on whatever criteria he chooses, which one is his story of the day. Feel free to play along at home. You can choose as well. Radley at 900chml.com is my email if you wish to put in your choice for which would be which. All right, here we go. Story number one comes to us from Ohio, Will. It is a, uh, an 11-year-old boy in Ohio, in Cleveland actually, was unhappy with the fact that mom took away his PlayStation. I guess he'd been misbehaving. And so she took away his PlayStation and said, no, that's it. If you can't hold up your end of the bargain here and the social contract with our family, you don't get to be on your game. Well, he didn't like that much, apparently. So he responded. <laughs> well, let me just tell you what happened. Uh, dad realized what was happening because dad was driving home and suddenly called mom on the phone and said, I think our 11-year-old just drove down the street in our Dodge Durango. (laughs) Oh, no. The the kid took mum's Dodge Durango and took it for a joyride that went on at high speed, 70 miles an hour, until he crashed the SUV into a parked truck.
1: Oh, my word. That
0: is how you don't respond to mum taking away your PlayStation.
1: That is how you never get your PlayStation back.
0: Uh, Yes. Now, there is history here. Just to top it because back in October of last year this same child as a 10-year-old led police officer led police officers on a 50-mile chase on an interstate after stealing mum's car another time. I think mum here needs to do a much better job of hiding her keys. That's that, is- that's the that's the first lesson I would take from this.
1: Yep. Maybe no. I th- I think it's a fair guess. The kid was playing Grand Theft Auto on their PlayStation. Uh, yeah, th-
0: I never thought of that, but yes, that probably is exactly what was I happening. I think we
1: now know why the game was removed in the first place.
0: Uh, yes, no, no. Um, there have been no call, uh, no word yet on whether he will have it taken away. He is in custody, however. That's probably the safest place for him right now. Okay, story number two, and this one is just I I don't even know. This, you know, we were just talking about people making bad decisions with Internet and with their proclivities and things like that. Uh, There's a guy in Virginia who won a uh, congressional seat in the midterms down in the States on the weekend. The fact that he won is not the big deal because there were hundreds of people who were up for election and won. This guy, though, stands out because down in in uh, in uh, Vegas, down in the Vegas area, there was a former pimp who's now dead who won a congressional seat. Yep, that isn't even the weirdest because this guy in Virginia, his thing is he is described as a devotee of Bigfoot erotica. <laughs> oh i know about him (laughs) what i don't i did not know such a thing existed if if first of all there is no such thing as bigfoot as far as i know but he's into bigfoot erotica that of all the things that people could find to
1: each their own scott (laughs) uh, uh,
0: what I don't understand this. Uh, where do you... Who do you get... I, I mean, I'm assuming it's people in Bigfoot costumes. They, they don't have grainy video from the Washington's
1: I mean, state
0: that, b- forests. In
1: that video, Bigfoot is not clothed, so...
0: um, I guess. I guess. Th- this, one, this one puzzles me. This one puzzles me because, I mean, uh, every other form of this kind of thing, you would at least believe there was a real thing, right? If you're into feet, well, you use real feet. It's Bigfoot. Anyway, there you go. Bigfoot, a devotee of Bigfoot erotica. How do you put that on your resume? All right. And number three, and this one may be the odder one. Uh, I don't know if it's the best story of the day, but it is the oddest one. I think maybe, although Bigfoot erotica is, uh, is right up there. In Brazil, They have a competition every year. Uh, It's called the Annual Miss Bum Bum Contest. And it is exactly what you think it would be based upon the name of that competition. All right. It is a competition for the best butt in Brazil. Okay. Okay. It's a basically a bum-bum beauty contest. The women go up on stage. I, now, I don't know if there's a male version of it. Probably. It's 2018. But you go up on stage if you are competing, and you wear a thong of some kind, and you show what you got. Yep. You, and however, this year's Miss Bum-Bum Brazil contest has devolved into a massive fight because the winner, according to the runner-up who threw a tantrum on stage and grabbed the trophy and the sash, the winner has, well, she claims that the winner's butt is bogus. Oh. That there has been work done that she's claiming the winner's butt is enhanced with plastic somehow. Now I don't know much about plastic butts, but, Anyway, this is now a fight that the second pla- the first runner-up believes the first place has an enhanced butt and should have been ineligible to win the Miss Brazil Bum Bum Contest.
1: Interesting. So
0: will you, as your story of the day today, give it to the 11-year-old who had his Game Boy taken away or his PlayStation taken away and what took his mom's car on a joyride, the Gob candidate who is a devotee of Bigfoot erotica, or the Miss Bum Bum meltdown?
1: Oh, I'm giving giving it to that kid who will be played by Nicolas Cage in the story about his life 40 years (laughs) from now.
0: (laughs) There you go. Uh, And boy, it was an interesting week. I had about eight more I could have gone to. That's the best three.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Now, some of you, if you've lived in Hamilton for any period of time, you know the name Kineski. Back, I don't even know what year, my guest will tell me in just a second, years and years and years ago, the guy who was the original, the originator of the Kineski name, Pops Kineski, Emil Pops Kineski invented the goalie pad that was worn by pretty much everybody in hockey. In fact, for a number of years, every single NHL goalie, every single NHL goalie was wearing Kineski pads. But then three years ago, the store that was at the corner of Wellington and Barton that many of you drove by many, many, many times over the years, the store was demolished. It was sold. The store was knocked down. It was, it is apparently going to become a medical clinic, although nothing has happened at this point. And when that happened, a uh, hundred years of Kineski tradition kind of vanished for a lot of people. It appeared that Kineski was going to be gone. The name was just going to sort of fade away and just be a memory for people in Hamilton. Uh, turns out that's not the case. The guy who is the owner of the Kineski, was the owner of the Kineski store. He is the owner of the Kineski brand. Uh, his name is Joel Hulsman. He joins me now. Joel, how are you tonight?
3: Good. You, Scotty? How
0: I, are you? Well, man? I'm doing great. And I've you know, i I've known for a while that uh, the Kineski brand wasn't just fading into the mists. But it, it's only recently that I learned that how far you guys are actually back. Because I know you were still making equipment. But you guys are actually back in the NHL now for the first time in like 25 years.
3: Sure are. Yeah, we're back with our uh, chest and arm pads. Actually, they're uh, uh, we make them to the new regulation uh, that that uh, the NHL's come out with, and uh, we're taking it by uh, storm right now, man. We got like twenty six guys. Yeah, twenty six.
0: Okay, so you guys are known mostly, and you would acknowledge this, you're known mostly as a pad company. That's where the name Kineski is most closely associated. You're not yeah. doing pads right now. My understanding is part of that is if you have equipment in the NHL, if a goalie is wearing equipment that is visible, you have to pay a fee, right, to the NHL? Uh, $130,000. That's not a small fee. That's a lot of goalie pads to sell.
3: That's a lot of goalie pads.
0: All right. So you're not doing that yet. So you've gone with the shoulder and arm pads, which are under the equipment. You don't have you don't have to pay the fee for that? Nope, not at all. All right. And it, it turns out that when you were shutting down the store uh, back in 2015, well, walk me through the story. You, you're about to shut the thing down and somebody comes up and approaches you and wants the name?
3: Yeah. A couple of guys. Um, Approached me out of London, uh, guys that I've known for a while, and uh, the designers and builders. And of, of hockey the, equipment. the name again, and here we go. We're back.
0: And what was the reason? If, if they can design and make the equipment, uh, presumably they can then put the thing out on the market. So, what was the for them? What did they tell you? Why did they need the Kineski name?
3: Uh, just the value that it came with it that's all uh just the history and uh wanted to resignate uh the name pops again and get the kineski name back in the
0: nhl the the funny part about that though joel is that probably there's not a goalie playing in the nhl right now that ever would have worn kineski at any point so the name probably means a lot maybe to their fathers or their grandfathers but not really to them
3: sure it does you're right but we're making our way back slowly but surely
0: so these guys that approached you they are guys who have uh, designed equipment and i guess your timing turns out to be pretty good with this because right around the time they're making these shoulder and arm pads as well as other stuff the nhl puts these new rules in that says you have to the goalies now have to shrink their stuff so that the padding is actually for protection not just to take up more space in the net and right around the time that you and they are coming up with this stuff is when this is all happening so there's an open door for you guys
3: oh big time yep
0: why 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 is we why does that homework. door open
3: we did our homework what does that mean well the- all the big guys, uh, like CCM and Vaughn and Bauer, they just uh, kept on building the stuff the way it uh, used to be, and they didn't follow the guidelines, and we did. And we got back into it because uh, the NHL put, um, uh, what did they want to do? They want to uh, they wanna analyze the goalies now. Uh, For being too big. So everybody's, you know, fine. You're looking at fines. You're looking at suspensions. You're looking at trainers getting suspended. And we just, we just happen to hit it right and get it right. And had a little bit of help from the NHL pushing us,
0: but all the other companies that made because all these places they all make their own shoulder and arm pads. They could have just reduced the size of theirs, correct? Like they're not well, they they're not have. they're not throwing in the towel on this. So why did the goalies decide they wanted to go to you guys as opposed to just the the reduced version ones they could have got from the big companies?
3: Well, you know what? Soon as uh, Brendan Holby got his, and everybody else saw it, uh, the floodgates opened.
0: So it was Brayden Holpe with the Capitals that was the first guy? Yep. Did you go after him, or did he come to you? No,
3: he kind of came to us. He heard about us and wanted to try it, and he doesn't change his equipment very often. So we kind of lucked out there, and it just ballooned from there.
0: And you say now there's 26 guys that are wearing it either in games or practice. Well,
3: we've got uh, we've got 26 sets out there. That's for sure. And we probably have about eight guys wearing them now, six to eight guys, because it takes some transition to get into them.
0: Okay, this I understand, and I I, I learned this today, and I didn't realize this. Um, apparently building shoulder and arm pads more than gloves, more than a blocker, more than a uh, catching glove, more than pads. These are like the most complicated things in hockey to build.
3: Oh, it's an art. Why? I I watch uh, my partners do it and uh,
0: I just shake my head.
3: The old man Pops kineski would be rolling over in his grave right now if he saw the way things are made.
0: Well, Pops, when Pops was doing it, a chest pad was a giant piece of felt <laughs> That's that had some leather put over top of it.
3: Yeah, with some kapok and deer hair
0: in it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sure. And so there were probably three pieces that had to be sewn together, and that was about it, with a strap uh, yeah, or two. About that. <laughs> uh, now, how many pieces are involved in building an a, b- upper body protector now for a goalie? Uh,
3: about six. 76 pieces or
0: so. And it's all hand done?
3: All hand done.
0: So when you're, uh, for, for Kineski right now, because again, you are in competition with still the the oh. big companies. Yep. How many of these can you make in a week if they're hand done?
3: Uh, about four.
0: That's not a lot. No, I know. How can you compete then?
3: Um, a lot of hard work and muscle. <laughs> What a sweat.
0: But is the idea that someday down the road,
3: uh, oh, it'll change someday.
0: That you will be able to ramp up the production?
3: Yeah, but I don't think we'll ever go offshore with that. No, we'll just keep it. Everything's going to be strictly Canadian-made.
0: And so, does that just mean hiring more people to build these things?
3: Yep. Yep.
0: Now, you guys Small are not steps in, right
3: now. Say that again. Small steps.
0: Small steps, yeah. Well, I mean, it, look if if it's four and um, they each one, that means each one probably takes close to a day for someone to do.
3: Oh, well, for sure. Yeah, just the cutting out. Oh,
0: there was a time, Joel, when again when Pop Skaneski was doing this, and what year? What was the year that he made the first goalie pads? Uh,
3: nineteen twenty-four.
0: All right. So the two, three years. Before the Toronto Maple Leafs became the Maple Leafs, they were still the St. Patrick's. That's how far back it was. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, but back when he was doing this, he was doing all the pads by hand, of course. This was way before we would have had any other way to do it. And I've, I know that I've heard this many times over the years that it was difficult to get a set of Kineski pads because the lineup to get them was so long that it would take he made several days.
3: 100 pair a year.
0: Yeah. And so, if you were not on the list, uh, you didn't, you couldn't just walk in and do it. Is that the same now with the chest pads? Because you're not just making them for the uh, NHL we're guys.
3: Fourteen weeks.
0: That's what your waiting time is now.
3: Yeah. Oops.
0: It is. I mean, it is. Uh, it, it is the idea that once this really begins to take off, that this is going to be the launching pad to having Kineski pads or gloves or whatever else back in the oh, NHL? Yeah. yeah.
3: Yep. For sure. That's my dream.
0: Can that work, though? C- can you, as a small Canadian several-guy office, can you compete with those big guys, especially when, as you say, you've got to put 130000 bucks down just for licensing to get it into the NHL? Can it yeah, work?
3: That's each year, too.
0: Yeah. Can it work?
3: Um, yeah, it, it'll work. if it, You just need someone to back you. You need, you need a, a big company to come in and help you out.
0: So there still has uh, to be something there besides just a small... Yeah. Okay. What about the idea? Now, your, your building that everybody knows about, your building that was at Wellington and Barton, it went down three years ago. It was knocked yeah. down. Uh, first of all, where's the big sign? Any idea? Where's the, the Kineski yeah, sign? Uh,
3: John from uh, United Trophies has it. Oh, yeah. So it, it, it,
0: it does live.
3: Yep. It does live. And it's all lit up. It looks beautiful.
0: When that building went down, as I said off the top, there were people who figured that that was the end of Kineski. Now, obviously not. Is there any thought that now that this has been revived, that there's another store to open somewhere and sell this stuff?
3: Never.
0: <laughs> you say that Never. with enthusiasm. Why not? No way. Why? It's too old. But couldn't it work? Couldn't there? not there enough demand?
3: You know what? <laughs> no, it's... The whole industry's changed now, Scott. It's, it's changed.
0: Everything in what way?
3: Driven by the internet now and Kijiji and no more touch feely bring in inventory and people, you know, buy it that way. It's everything's, everything's changed now. You know that.
0: But if it's, if you're building stuff custom made, someone has to measure them. So, is it? Are you are you basically having people send in their measurements as if they were buying a suit when online? Our
3: new website's up. You'll be able to measure yourself. We have a state-of-the-art um, uh, website coming with uh, sizing charts and color charts and everything. It's going to be. It's going to blow everybody out of the water.
0: Do you know how much back in 1924, 1930. Back in the early, early days of Pops Kineski making goalie pads, any idea what he would charge for a pair of pads?
3: Oh, they were probably about fifteen or twenty-five dollars.
0: And what's a what is a chest pad now from Skaneski going to cost?
3: Seven hundred.
0: Wow. So you, I mean, this is you, you are going after not necessarily the beer league player here. You're going after oh, the no, high end going, player.
3: We're going for an elite player.
0: Yeah, this is this is this is not for everybody.
3: You know what, Scott? I cannot believe how many goalies there are out there.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but they can't. Surely they're not. I
3: give you that. I can't believe how many goalies there are.
0: But surely they're not all spending that kind of money, are they?
3: Um, you know what? If you wanna if you wanna look like a pro and play like one, you gotta buy like a pro.
0: Joel, I played goal for most of my life, and I had good equipment, and I never played like a pro. <laughs> I've
3: never seen you play, Scott.
0: <laughs> oh, well, you, you can be thankful for that. You don't need therapy as a result. Uh, Joel Hulsman, he is the owner still of Kineski. You thought Kineski had gone away. Kineski's not gone away. So when you're watching games now, uh, you said Brayden Uh Who else? Who are the other goalies oh, people get, should be looking uh, for?
3: Smith out of Calgary. Mike Smith, okay. Um uh, Luongo Roberto Luongo in Florida, Florida okay. Um, both um, Dallas goalies, both uh, Arizona goalies wearing them. Uh, who else?
0: So, when, you, when you're watching these guys, then the idea is if they're playing they're an away game, white shirt, so they got the white sweater on, look, see uh, through, you Can
3: just see you can just see the, the markings.
0: Is that like what you do?
3: Name on the elbows and and down the uh, the breastplate.
0: Is that what you do now when you watch hockey? Or are you just looking for Kineski?
3: Uh, yeah, basically. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Joel Halsman, listen, appreciate the time. Thanks for doing Thanks, this today.
3: I, I appreciate it, buddy. Thanks it, for uh, talking.
0: It is, uh, it is great. If you're a Hamiltonian, so you've lived here any period of time, if you know the history of Kineski and of Pops Kineski and everything else, it is great that they are back in the game somehow even though it's not all that visible you got to work a little bit to see it it's a that is a touchstone for for hamilton in the world the fact that this is where the goalie pad was invented and now the fact that they are going to be or they are back in the game it's a good thing
1: the scott radley show weekday evenings from six to eight on 900 chml